Thank you for listening to Solace Radio. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and comment below. Those little things really help us out and continue to help our channel to grow. Stay tuned to Solace Radio. Shalom and welcome to the Wild Branch Ministry and welcome to our newest teaching series entitled Area 51. It's the Area 51 series, actually. Uh, technically, I guess you might say that, that everything at Wild Branch is called a series, even if it's only one package of CDs. And we've generally done that because I've always intended to, to continue in uh, everything that we produce. Uh, we've done the ministering gifts of the Holy Spirit. We call that a series because I don't intend to leave it at just that. I continue tend to continue to do more teaching on that subject, especially that subject, because I think that would be helpful in us restoring all the things that religion has perverted and corrupted over the years. Not just the things that are convenient for us, but all things he's going to restore. And once again, that is really kind of what this is all about. The idea of restoration is part uh, of the theme here at Wild Branch because of the idea of this cyclical teaching of Scripture and our distaste for evolutionary thinking or even the teaching of organic evolution. The whole idea of, of theological uh, evolution and organic evolution has no room for restoration. There's no concept of restoring anything in a linear thinking process, which is what our dominant theology is in Western countries, and that is taken right from organic evolution. And so I want to talk about that a little bit before we get into the subject of this Area 51 series. The first one we're going to deal with a couple of subjects. Number one, agrobiolinguistics, which is something I've mentioned before very briefly. And I want to get into a lot of the evidences of that in the scripture and in the cyclical things going on in nature outside the window here. And then we're going to get right into the Torah or the Word of God as it's written and displayed, especially the dynamics of how the Hebrew language works in our cellular structure, within us, how cells operate, how life operates in our body, subsequently in plants and, and animals uh, too, is a display, an expression of exactly how the Hebrew language works as well, because it is that language, I believe, according to Hebrews 11, verse 1 through 3, and many other places, that created the universe. I submit to you that all things in the universe are created by the Word of God, and that the Word of God is is displayed and expressed in those 22 letters of creation, very similar to the periodic table of the elements, which is another thing that we'll address in a future Area 51 series, and that the combination of these things is what God used to create the universe. God used them to create the universe. Don't misunderstand that we have somehow become little gods and that by the correct rearranging of the letters we can create uh, universes. That's not what I'm saying. It's what God used to create the universe. And so we call this series, a part of this series is, is, is called In My Flesh I See God. And I will explain that as we get, because that's a quote basically from Job chapter 19 verse 26. Before we begin, let's start about, uh, let's begin by the definition of Area 51. What are we, what are we talking about when we say Area 51? 
Area 51 is a military base in the southwestern uh, part of, of southern, what's well, in southern Nevada. And it's a, a training range. It's also the place where, now I'm giving you this from the military's point of view, from the government's point of view. It owns that land there. It's a very secretive place because from their point of view, and I'm not saying that, that this isn't correct, but from their point of view, that's where they test new military aircraft and secret weapon systems and so forth that uh, we perhaps are not using in our military now, but we'll use in the future. It's also where they study and practice dealing with enemy aircraft of and weapon systems of, of our enemies and so forth as well. Now, that is uh, the point of view from the government. And that's why they don't let the people on the base. But Area 51 has become a popular phrase in America for the past 50 years, primarily because it's also become the frequent subject of UFO conspiracy theories, uh, space aliens, and so forth. There are those who submit that starting in the 1940s that UFOs were captured and aliens were actually captured, and they're all in this plot of land in Nevada. And so that's what it's uh, come to be known as. Now, why have I called this series that, one might ask? Well, it's because over the years I have made it a habit after a conference or a seminar to stay afterwards and meet with those who want to talk about things that aren't the or not the ordinary subjects of Bible studies and conferences. They're not the usual theological subjects. And so we we have and they have things to share too. That's the reason I do it is not to have an necessarily an extra session for me to teach in. For I had just been talking all evening. But it's an opportunity also for others to be able to share things in this area. We talk about things that are either A, already valid, validated by hard empirical science, provable science, or scientific theories that are being worked upon, whether it be by physicists or biologists or uh, even those who work in sound and color and, and disciplines like that, that are verified or already revealed in the scriptures. It's not that we're there just to talk about weird stuff. It's just that a lot of these things that have previously been unseen to humanity in general, I'm talking about especially up until the late 1800s when the industrial age began, God, I believe the Bible, is God revealing to man many of the unseen things, and because we can't see them, he has instructions on how to live our life knowing that we can't see them. But he also, because he created us and he's smarter than we are, he also foreknew that one day man would be able to peer into things that we have the ability to make ourselves and see the things that were previously unseen. And because of that, and because of his desire, his intense desire that everyone comes to the, into the kingdom. Everyone will not, obviously, but he loves the world, John 3.16, and he wants us all to come into the kingdom, that he has used multitudinous ways to reach out to us, to reveal himself to us. As a matter of fact, Hebrews uh, chapter 11 tells us, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must first believe that he is. That's the first step. 
And so I believe that God has used all these things, all the things and the natural things of creation to reach out to man in every conceivable way because he loves us so. This is not, some people misconstrue this as some sort of uh, New Age teaching, the New Age Christ teaching of the Course on Miracles and things like that where God is everything and things like that. I'm not saying anything close to that. I'm saying that God has revealed himself in everything and that no man will stand before God in the end of days with any excuse. And so since God knows that in order to please him, we must first believe that he is, he's given us abundant evidence in all the cycles, the life cycles, our life cycle for humans, the life cycle of plants, the life cycle of animals, everything that you see outside your door, even into the smallest things that we are now seeing molecules, atoms, and so on and so forth. That's why this is called Area 51, is because I believe the scriptures back this up. And so God has used all these ways to reach out to mankind because he wants us to know that he is first. Then I leave it up to him as to how he draws man into him. But he first must capture our attention in the and in all the things that he's created. Now the enemy knows that. That's the clear thing. We've talked about this before. The enemy knows that the end is revealed right out of the beginning. Isaiah forty six ten, and so he knows that these things, uh, uh, this nature of God, of who he is, and his desire and will and purpose of for mankind is in all of these things. So he sets out to pervert it. To pervert the natural things of creation. There's nothing he can do to the unseen God. There's nothing he can do to that. So he knows, according to Romans chapter 1 verse 20 again, that the unseen things are revealed clearly, Romans 1 20 says, in the things which are made. And so he attacks that. I have submitted to you before that the use of organic evolution or the teaching of organic evolution is the primary tool that I believe the anti-Messiah, the enemy, uses to pervert or corrupt that which God uses to reach out to man so we can first believe that he is. I hope that uh, makes sense. You've heard me speak before about the difference between the Hebrew thinking process and the Greek thinking process or the Western thinking. And that is the difference between linear thinking and cyclical thinking and that God operates in cycles. Not just in his teaching in the scripture and the history that we have laid out of his people from the garden on, but he also displays it, as I said, in everything we see going on. A day is a cycle. A week is a cycle. A year is a cycle. The seasons are cycles. The leaves fall off the trees, at least where I live, about the same time every year. They appear back on the trees and the plants and the vegetation about the same time every year. About once a month, the moon is full. And the next month, about the same time, it's full again. And so the God is reaching out desperately to show how he operates to mankind. But see, we resist that. We want to think from a linear point of view. And I'm suggesting to you that the scriptures foreknew that. Let me give you an example. In James, Yaakov, chapter 3, verse 6, there's a very interesting verse there that we might just gloss over. I've I've done sermons on it before when I was just a regular pastor, dude, and I've heard teachings on it. uh, And it's usually generally used to... 
be the backup for a sermon or a message on uh, Lashon Hara, or the evil tongue and so forth, speaking evil and gossip and things like that, and how we destroy destroy each other with our tongue and the things we say. Now, we will also address that in a, in later on in another Area 51 series where we deal with sound and sound frequencies and so forth. But my purpose now in quoting this verse is because it starts out in the context of words or the tongue. The context is the things that we say and the damage that results in what we say. I've talked before about how there's books in the scripture and that there's a book of life that is directly related to those who have followed the God of Israel from the very beginning and that the enemy in Revelation chapter 13 verse 18 also has a book, uh, the, the book of the beast, if you will. Translated as the number of the beast in English, but it's safer in Hebrew. The book or the record, that which records words. And words mean things. And that's what we're talking, that's what we've always been talking about. The context, he says in James chapter one, my brethren, uh, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment. Little warning there for someone like me as well. And then he talks about being offending people and so forth in words. And he goes on and talks about the, the, the tongue, how it's like a rudder on a ship and it's like a bit in a horse's mouth and so forth. And verse five, he says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts of great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The things that words and teaching, the purpose of words is things we teach people. Many, we have, uh, difficulty sometimes getting this whole message of the return to the Hebrew roots and the return to the feast and the Sabbaths and, and the dietary laws and so forth to our friends. And some of you have experienced much great difficulty in doing this. It's because they have been taught something exactly the opposite. And the profound duration that teaching has in people people's lives, whether it's true teaching or false teaching, you're trying to break a barrier of something that was taught with words. And then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, so is the tongue. Now keep in mind when we say tongue, so is the teaching that comes forth among our members that it defiles the whole body. Now we will get into that in more detail in this series and the next one. It sets on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. Boy, there's some harsh, very strong language used here by Yaakov. Now, the course of nature there in your English, you wouldn't quite capture, I believe, something that is very fundamental taught in the beginning that uh, in the English unless you saw it in the uh, the Greek here, the Greek language, and then you take it back to the very beginning. The words used here in Greek, translated as course of nature, is literally translated as the cycle or wheel of Genesis. The Greek phrase here, translated as course of nature, is liter- literally trakan tes genesios. Trakan tes genesios. Genesios, Genesis. Trakan is the Greek word for a wheel. The same wheel that's Ezekiel's wheels in the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to submit to you that, and we're not going to teach on it here, this will be a later one, that it is my firm belief, and I won't go into the details here, but it's my firm belief that Ezekiel's wheel is God the Father teaching us once again 
what he has been doing from the very beginning. Constantly, as a father to children, trying to teach us his ways as opposed to our ways. And he already knew that his people would be scattered among the nations and they would learn that linear thinking process at, uh, that is contrary to nature. It's contrary to what we see going on in the physical world out there, which he created and the enemy is trying to corrupt through linear evolutionary thinking. And so I believe, and as I said, we'll get into the details of this at some other time, that the wheel within the wheel is the life processes or the life cycles that God teaches his people how to live and be, and to be blessed and to be prospered by their father. The outside wheel, I believe, and again, I'm not going to support this right now. I'll do it later. But the outside wheel is the 7,000-year cycle of man. A day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. And that the inside wheel, the wheel within the wheel, which is, according to Ezekiel's prophetic vision, it's a prophetic vision, remember, and it's given to the rebellious house of Israel, i.e., Israel has done something. His people have done something to, to rebel against God and turn away from God. And Ezekiel, God has given this vision to Ezekiel to re- bring to the house of Israel to restore God's ways back to his people. And that's why it says that the spirit of, of these creatures and so forth is within the wheel. And we know that the spirit of God has come, John 14, verse 26 to bring back to our remembrance his words, John fourteen twenty six, And so I believe the cycles that God has given us in which contain his righteousness, Psalm 23, verse 3, says paths of righteousness in English, but it's, it's cycles of righteousness in Hebrew, which David also asked God to restore unto him. You know, lead me, because he knew he had drawn, drawn away from God. Lead me in your cycles of righteousness, not the one that man establishes. And that within, that we are to bring those things back to remembrance. The cycles are the yearly feasts. God has put his righteousness in those. He's teaching us these things in these, uh, yearly feasts. The, uh, new moon, Rosh Kodesh, there's teaching. God's righteousness is displayed when we are obedient to these things. The weekly Shabbat, the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath teaches us about his creation every time we do it. God moves within that. The Torah portions, the weekly Torah portions that we do at Shabbat, we learn of God's ways. And this goes on and on. And that's what I believe these two wheels are all about. And as I said, we'll go into detail on that at some other time. But I believe that Yaakov is referring to this being destroyed by other teaching. The tongue, words, these are the things it does. Like I said, you wouldn't see this in English course of nature, even though uh, I would not argue with that translation. But but it gives us a little more insight when we take it back even into the Greek. We didn't even go back to the Hebrew on that. We went back to the Greek and it revealed that it is the wheel or cycle in Genesis. Everything points back to the beginning. And I can assure you the enemy does not like the idea of going back to the beginning because he knows that the end is revealed there. So his object in nature, in in the things that we see outside our window, and in our theology is to convince us that the beginning is no longer relevant to your lives. It's been, if you will, done away with. 
Okay, moving on, I want to begin by one of my favorite subjects, agrobiolinguistics. That is a term some of you have probably already recognized that I just simply made up. Now, it represents, it's just a phrase that represents something that I submit to you is revealed in nature and revealed in the scriptures as well. I used to call this Biagra Linguistics. Biagra Linguistics. But Carol reminded me that that sounds a lot like something else and, and people may misunderstand that. So I switched the two words, agrobiolinguistics. Now what that means is the agra part, of course, is short for agriculture. The bio part is short for uh, biology or, if you will, life, plants, animals, uh, people, particularly animals and people. Linguistics, of course, is just a fancy term for words or language or that which comes from the tongue. We just talked about that in Yorkoff's book there. Agrobiolinguistics, what I submit to you is that language, that's the linguistics part, is found, the language of your Bible is found embedded, the original meaning of how it started out. I call the mountaintop meaning of the word in agriculture and biology. Once again, the reason why God did that is because he loves the whole world and he used a method, a conduit, if you will, a way to reach out to everyone in the world with things that everyone in the world can relate to and see and experience. He didn't use obscure ways in order to reach out to mankind to express who he is so we can first believe that he is. He used these things. So through this first part, I'm going to lay down the foundation and give lots of examples of the connection between where all language comes from, and that is a house, a family, and a piece of land, the natural things that we see. So then when we get into the DNA and the Torah part, that will make more sense. One of my favorite disciplines is called archaeology. Archaeology with respect to sciences is, is, is relatively new with respect to the, uh, to the rest of them. It really didn't get going until the late 1800s and so forth. Uh, William F. Albright, the father, if you will, of modern archaeology. Uh, the, the reason of my interest in it is not something that uh, I am an expert at. My wife has a degree in archaeology, South American archaeology. It's not something that I even know that much about as, as far as the, the science itself. But I highly respect it because it's my fundamental belief that every time we dig down into the ground, into the earth, and bring stuff out of the ground from the past, the more it contradicts evolution and the more it supports the creation. I'm all for bringing stuff up out of the ground. One of the reasons is because of the nature of the word archaeology in the first place. I submit to you that archaeology is in essence the study of Brashit. That is the study of Genesis, the beginning. When we go back to Brashit or Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the very first two words that you read in Greek, in Hebrew you read Brashit bara. And create, in the beginning, created, in the Elohim God, and so on and so forth. In English, we read in the beginning, but in Greek, we read in arche, in arche, in the beginning. And so that's the basis of archaeology, is the study of the beginning. And so that's why I'm confident that when they stick shovels in the ground, they're going to keep bringing out the evidence of the very beginning to support the scriptures. Now, in Genesis 1, verse 11, let's begin there. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after. And in Hebrew, it says, 
his kind, whose seed is in himself upon the earth, and it was so. Now, I know we've talked about this verse before, and so I won't belabor this thing, but once again, when you see it in Hebrew, it's talking about much more than just uh, flowers and plants and orange trees and so forth to show you where they started, because it says that the fruit tree yields fruit after his kind whose seed is in himself. There's a far more profound teaching of how everything is going to operate through the revelation of vegetation in Genesis 1 verse 11, which you might just casually gloss over if if you did not know that these things are in the beginning. When we get to Isaiah, he brings us back to these things. And so I first submit to you that an understanding of who we are and how we operate is embedded in the beginning in Genesis 1, verse 11. And so when we go to our New Testament, for example, and we read in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, that the seed is the word of God, I submit to you that in the Bible, agricultural terms, you know, like fruit and plants and growing and those kind of words, and leaves and trees and branches and things like that, are equivalent to grammatical terms, terminology and, and that we use when we talk about how to diagram a sentence and so forth and how to take apart words. And, and I'll talk more about that as we go on so that'll make sense. And biology are all equivalent things in the Bible. In other words, terms used to express our bodies, a head, a liver, skin, hair, so on and so forth. They're all equivalent terms in the Bible. Now, I know some people don't understand what I just said, but I hope to lay the foundation of where we begin with this uh, principle right now. The good seed, according to uh, Luke 8, verse 11, is the word of God. The good seed of the parable of the sower is the word of God. Seed, of course, is agriculture and the word of God. We're talking about, you know, grammar, language, things that he says and speaks forth. That's revealed through a combination of 22 letters in the Hebrew language. We also know, according to Yochanan 1, 1 and 14 and many other places, I'm just giving you some examples, that the word of God is Yeshua. See, Yeshua was a person. He came, and, and he came in the flesh. So the word of God equals the Messiah, and the good seed equals the word of God. Yeshua equals the one good seed. According to Galatians 3.16, Yeshua is the one good seed. Paul tells us that we are Abraham's seed, not seeds as of many, but one seed, and that is the Messiah. So, The clear conclusion to this is the good seed, agriculture, is the word of God, words, linguistics, which became flesh, body, biology, and dwelt among us. That is the foundation, I believe, for all the synonymous relationships that these things have all throughout Scripture from beginning to end. In Job, chapter 19, verse 26, It says, and I quote, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now that's the way it says it in your King James English. They've supplied the word worms and even body there for for continuity based upon the context of what he's talking about. Now, we're going to talk about uh, very briefly the four levels of Hebrew interpretation later, but very briefly because I've already taught them many times. But traditionally... For Christian theologians and for Jewish theologians, they have interpreted this verse in what we call a remez, 
are a prophetic sense. In other words, they recognize that Job recognized that one day, even though he was going to die and go into the ground, one day he would rise up from the ground and he would see God. He believed in a resurrection. That's the remez of it. But the pashat of it here is In other words, once again, God's ability to be able to teach more than one thing in a verse is what the four levels of Hebrew interpretation of a verse are all about, is also revealed through the writings of the Rambam, a book called Guide for the Perplexed, Moses ben Maimonides, a very well-known physician and theologian in the 12th century uh, in Spain, and he was uh, a very well-known, probably one of the greatest physicians ever. He was um, called for all over Europe. He was requested all over Europe because he was a great physician. The reason why he was a great physician, I believe, is because he knew the scriptures. Did he believe in the Messiah? No, and so forth. But he knew the word of God. And because of that, he was one of the greatest physicians around. And so According to the Rambam, which is just an acronym for his name, he believed that one day man would be able to look inside of his body and see the cells of livers and and, and how our body operates, and he would see God. Now, what did he mean by that? That, that? that God is a liver or God is a pancreas or a spleen? No, he had the insight to understand that one day man would be able to look inside of his of what makes up a body and be able to see a designer. The fact that these things did not come by evolutionary processes, but a creator designed all these things. And so he saw it in what we call the Peshat. He took it literally for what it said. And so that's why you can uh, uh, read it, even though it appears to be in the future tense in uh, in English there. Hebrew, really, when we take it back to that time, knows of no such concept as a future tense. Basically, in Hebrew, things are either in the perfect or in the imperfect. This is one where it's in the imperfect. So it, it, when we translate it, It says, literally, in the Hebrew there, in my flesh I see God. It's something that's happening and will continue to happen. It's only when it needs to be translated in other languages that we get all these aorist and pluperfect and and uh, future and, and tenses. Okay, But Hebrew just has perfect and imperfect. And so I also submit to you that there is a sowed here. Now that's the third, the, uh, another level of Hebrew interpretation called sowed. And that is in the fact that it, it says, yet in my flesh I see God. The word flesh there in Hebrew is basar, basar. It uh, is a word that means pictographically to hold something together. Because that's what the flesh does, is it, uh, it holds, you know, your bones and your organs all together in your body. But it's translated, now that's concretely, to hold things together. It's translated as flesh and body, but it's also the Hebrew word for what we say in the English gospel. The Hebrew word for glad tidings or good news, we translate it into the, to, to the Greek and to the English as the gospel. And so I submit to you that in a so, in other words, something you have to dig deep to understand, he's saying, yet in the gospel or the good news, I see God. And remember, God says, in order to, for to please God, you first have to believe that he is. And so one of the reasons why we teach the good news of what the Messiah did is because in it, you see God. Now, that's the sowed of it.
Now, we go to Breshit, or Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, and it gives us a description. This is before Genesis 11, where the, where the languages are scattered. The, the one language was scattered and split, and the people were scattered. Now, why did that happen simultaneously? Because words, grammar, and people, biology, are synonymous. But what precedes that, you might also notice, is a dividing of the land. You see that that in the days of Peleg. So at roughly the same time, you have the land and the people and the words. Another example, which you're going to see too many of, you're probably going to get sick of by the time you get done with the series. I've seen this uh, displayed. It says in Genesis 10, verse 5, But these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, agriculture, everyone after his tongue, there's your language and your words, after their families in their nations. So you can see the same three things in the beginning in Genesis chapter 10 with respect to what happened to the earth, the land, this is post-flood, what happened to the language and what happened to the people. Because they're synonymous terms in scripture, that's why. Okay, let's go on to some other examples. Matityahu or Matthew 4 verse 4, Yeshua says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You all are familiar with this verse. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, did he mean only the New Testament words out of the mouth of God? Or every word is how man shall live. Paul says the same thing in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 when he says, All scripture, there was no New Testament when he said this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for reproof and correction and so on and so forth. So the man may be perfectly equipped to do what God wants him to do. Notice, though, that man, there's your biology, shall not live by bread. There's something that grows up out of the ground, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. There is your language again. Evrim or Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. You're familiar with this. God teaches us that the word of God is Living and powerful. The word of God is living. Words are alive. Now, one of the reasons it says this is because we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, once again, that it is the word of God that created everything in the universe. And so if there are living things in the universe, that would be plants, animals, people, for example, then according to the law of like kind that is revealed in Bershit in the beginning... In order for something to be living that created it, it has to be living. You can't get life from non-life. And so it's the word. So those letters are alive. And not only are they alive, but they're powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, referring to the fact that the sword is the word of God, but he's talking about it's powerful than anything, any man-made thing on earth. Powerful than the sword. Okay, let's keep moving on. In Yeshahu or Isaiah 65, verses 22 through 23, it says, They shall not build, and another inhabit. They shall not plant, and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of Yahweh, and their offspring is with them. Now, once again, 
trees being compared to his people, his seed, and his offspring. Those who are the seed of Yahweh are not those of the seed of man. The seed of man only produces another man. The seed of Yahweh is his word. We had that identified and defined for us in the parable of the sower, which the Messiah himself says is the most important parable of all the parables. Okay, moving on, let's give some other examples. Yeshua, according to Isaiah 11.1 1 and 10, John 15.1 and Galatians 3.16, and I will read some of these, Yeshua, the Messiah, our Deliverer, our Savior, is the seed, he's the root, he's the vine, and the branch. He's all of those things. He's, if you will, the beginning and the end. Using the analogy of a tree, which is what's being done here, he's the seed, the beginning, and he's the branch, and he's the fruit, and the and the flowers, and so forth. He's the beginning and the end using a tree. I, I know that some of us so casually uh, considered Yeshua just to be, well, he's just another dude. Uh, he's There's nothing uh, uh, to do with the, this whole concept of God becoming flesh. It's a, it's a Christian pagan idea. And he's just another guy, just another guy like Moses and so forth. And he's just a man. No, I suggest to you that there's much more evidence than just the traditional passages we always bring up when we argue about that subject to reveal to you, if we look and see how things operate outside the window once in a while, we'll see that there's something far more profound about the Messiah than just another dude. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall go grow forth out of his roots. He goes on in verse 10 and says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand for an instant of the peoples and to him the nations shall seek and so on and so forth. John chapter 15 verse 1, you're familiar with the fact that Yeshua says, I am the vine and ye are the branches. And we're, we'll talk about that in more detail a little bit later. And Galatians 3.16 is the one that, that tells us that he is the seed, the only seed. He's all of these things. We, as I just quoted in John 51, are the branches. He is the branch. We are the branches. Now, that word in Hebrew for the branch, a description of the Messiah, is netzer. It comes from the root natsar. It is a nun, a tzadi, and a resh. In the plural, it's notzrim, branches. I believe notzrim, branches, is the base or the root of the Nazarenes. One of the things that the early believers... Um, after the resurrection of the Messiah are referred to the Nazarenes or the Notesreme. Why? Well, because they recognized that they were following after the Netzer, the branch, Yeshua, the Messiah. See, the word branch is the concrete meaning. So we can look outside and see how a branch operates. But in the Hebrew, this is also the Hebrew word for to preserve or to restore. To preserve things and to restore things. And so we know when we look at a tree that the branch is that which preserves that which comes forth from the trunk and the roots and the seed. Remember, the very first, one of the very first law, laws that God gives is Go ye therefore and multiply after like kind. 
That principle is so valuable in Scripture because it throws out evolution right off the bat. It's like God already knew that the enemy would come and teach these things. And so he gives the analogy of trees and how trees and, and, and agriculture operates. And so we see that the branches would also be those who are preserving, sometimes translated as restore also in your scriptures, preserving what comes forth from the seed. And the seed, according to John 1.1, 1, 1, 114 and the parable of the sower is from the beginning. So there's only one good seed from the beginning. And as it produces this tree and branches out, if the branches are not producing that which comes forth from the seed, then they are cut off according to the analogy that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 11. Okay, I want you to show the, show the relationship between us and trees there once again. Old Torah scrolls, we also know, were buried in a coffin. Now, there's basically two methods, depending upon what aspect of Judaism that you're talking about. Uh, but there's uh, at least two methods in which Torah scrolls were handled in the past when it was time to uh, make a copy of them. When it was time to make a copy of them, usually because they were constantly rolled open and, and, and back and forth, and they would get a lot of creases in the in the Torah scroll. And if the cre- uh, cre- these creases occurred in a letter, then you can easily mix uh, mix up a dalit and a resh and so forth, or, or vice versa. And so, in order to keep that from happening, the scribes. Uh, went down, uh, sat down and copied a new Torah scroll. They would take the old Torah scroll because they didn't want to have any problems, any mis, uh, it to go on and be mistranslated and so forth. They would do one of two things, depending upon what sect of Judaism you're talking about. They would burn it and take the ashes and bury them in the ground. Or they would simply take the Torah scroll and put it in a little coffin. I mean, literally, they would treat the Torah just like a person. Now, why do you think the Jews did that? Well, they inadvertently are verifying the fact that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so they treat the Word of God like a person. You'll notice when you go into many Orthodox synagogues, they will grab the Torah scroll, grab, they will take very carefully the Torah scroll uh, and throw it upon their side and they would walk around the congregation and everybody would take their seat seat or their Bible or whatever and they would touch this Torah scroll. And they were, they were, they treated the Torah scroll to even today like it is a person. Of course, that's what you and I are trying to say as well. In each part of the Torah scroll, it has a, a, a purpose and a design to it. So when you get to Ephesians chapter 6, for example, we've had the traditional view that Paul is describing the armor because he was hooked to a Roman soldier. And, and so he's describing the things he sees on a Roman soldier as he's chained to the soldier. And that uh, may very well be. But Paul is quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 59 in particular, which is talking about the person of the Messiah, the word of God. When you understand uh, the details of a Torah scroll, you begin to realize as he's describing the parts of the Torah scroll and the fact that the Torah scrolls have a belt around it that girds the belt of truth. The Torah scroll has a, 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 a breastplate and it has leaves. Uh, or, or the, the, uh, the scroll itself is called leaves and so forth. And you have shields and you have a feet and a head and so forth. Uh, these are all parts of a Torah scroll that, par- that Paul is describing. Okay, moving right along. Let's get some other examples in here. We've got a lot more to go. God reveals himself in a bush, for example. 
Now, some of these are a little funny sometimes, I think, or a little silly sometimes, but I just wanted you to take notice of how God chooses to reveal himself. He does it through the things of nature. Uh, he reveals himself in a bush. Chavar in Hebrew. Chavar. Chet bet resh. Literally, concretely, is the word for a friend or a brother. Not in the sense of a biological brother, but in the sense of brethren, like you and I would call each other because we are one in the Messiah. We call each other brothers. Chavarim is the word in Hebrew. Chavarim is friends or close friends, like a brother. Yeshua uses it uh, in, in, uh, in the book of John as well. It literally means to join something together. It's used in the tabernacle to describe how the curtains of the tabernacle are brought together. They're joined together and they hold on to each other is, is what it says in Genesis or in Exodus 26, um, that these things hold on to each other. And so we see this display of brethren, if you will, t- grabbing each other's hand and, and holding on to one another in the curtains as they're put together in the tabernacle. Well, what's interesting about that is that in modern Hebrew, since this word is not in your scriptures, the Hebrew word for syntax is chavar. Chavar is the Hebrew word for syntax. Now, syntax, of course, is a grammatical term, once again, that the reason why it's the word for brethren or joined together or held together is because the syntax of a sentence is how the words of a sentence are all arranged and brought together to produce a thought. So the syntax of, of the sentence is how the words relate to each other and so forth. And so I, I found that fascinating, and I hope you do as well. Kavad in Hebrew, kaf, bet, dalet, is the word for glory, but it's also the word for your liver. We've brought that up before. Barak, a blessing, but also the Hebrew word for a knee. It's a body part, once again, if you will. Ayan. Ayan, which is one of the Hebrew letters, actually, is the Hebrew word for a spring or a fountain, but it's also the Hebrew word for an eye, relating to a fountain of water as your eye. It's even used sometimes to describe a place in the earth, the eye of the earth, or the fountain of the earth. The Bible consistently talks about the fruit of your lips, the fruit of your loins, the fruit of your mouth, the fruit of your doings. You'll notice. You'll notice that in nature, leaves have veins. We describe uh, leaves as having veins in them, like the veins in a leg and so forth of a human being. Once again, just comparing the agriculture, you know, to the body thing. In Isaiah chapter 14, verse 29, we find another example of how the enemy copies God. In other words, there, there there's a God, there's a devil, there's uh, angels, you know, there's demons. There's uh, this constant contrast of the ways of God with the ways of the enemy. And here's another example. We are of the root of David. The Messiah is our root. But the enemy has a root which produces his branches, which produces his flowers and his fruit. Isaiah 14.29 says, Rejoice not thou whole Palestina, Palestina, because the rod of him that smote you is broken, for out of the serpent's root shall come forth a cockatrice, and his fruit shall be a fiery flying serpent. So in other words, the enemy has a root, because the enemy also has a seed called the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, and he produces his fruit as well. 
Going on, staying in the book of Isaiah, it says in chapter 4, verse 2, In that day shall the branch of Yahweh be glorious and beautiful, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So those who are escaped of Israel are compared to the fruit of the earth in the day that the branch of Yahweh shall be beautiful and glorious. The word branch there is not netzer. It's tzamak. Tzamak. Atzadi, amem, and achet. And that happens also to be the Hebrew word for vegetables. It's the Hebrew word for vegetables. The word branch there is vegetables. The descriptions that you're going to have in the Messiah are always descriptions of clean things you might notice. Notice that the Messiah is not, it does not say in that day, uh, shall the crab legs of Yahweh be beautiful and glorious or the ham hocks of Yahweh and so forth. The Messiah, nothing associated with God would have anything to do with anything unclean. They're always clean things and so forth. Okay. I guess I got a little silly there, but let's go on. In Deuteronomy 29 verse 18, we have disobedience something a person does, compared to gall and wormwood. It says, lest there be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away this day from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be among you a root that bears gall and wormwood. Notice the use of roots, gall, and wormwood. Now, moving on. We know that uh, those of us who work with languages and so forth, many of you listen to me do the same thing I know, but you'll notice that as we trace language back, when we when you see the charts, they're diagrammed by trees. We have language trees. If any of you have, of course, I live in Utah, and it's very popular here with the, with the Mormons and genealogy and so forth, you trace back your family tree. So trees, language, families. Hmm, here we go again. I hope you can start to see a consistent uh, pattern here. And as a matter of fact, when we have a language tree, when the language branches off or when your family branches off, uh, that's when, once again, we call that a branch of the tree. Now, also uh, a very familiar term with respect to your body is the bones in your in your body of course your backbone and so forth is also uh, in biology called a tree your bones a particular backbone is called a tree the the word tree here of course in hebrew is etz the word for bones is etzem etzem so the same word for a tree is where we get the same word for bones because the bones of your body is the tree of the body. It's also a term, backbone, uh, is also a term used in molecular biology and in even wireless data terms. When we talk about computers, we talk about the backbone and so forth. So some of you who work with commu- computers would be familiar with that. We've talked in the past about the relationship between the word of God and bees. As well, that the, that the, uh, pictographic meaning, the uh, mountaintop meaning of the word word, dabar, in Hebrew, is to point to the source of food. To point to a food source. And we also know that dabar is the same root, the same word for bees in Hebrew. And we've talked about that before, I won't belabor it, but the reason why they're the same word is because God is smarter than we are. It's another evidence that God, that this is a supernatural book that we're looking at. Because only God in the beginning would have known 
and so subsequently had them be the same word, that bees spot the nectar in a flower and then go back to the hive and do the famous bee waggle dance, thereby showing all the other bees where the food is. And so because the bees do the same thing for other bees that the Word of God does, in Hebrew, they're the same words. And we go on. Rosh, Hebrew word Rosh, which you're familiar with, Rosh Hashanah, and so forth, the head of the year or the head of the new year. Uh, the word Rosh is a man's head. It's used to describe a man's head. There's biology. The head word, like if you're going to write a letter or something uh, uh, to somebody, the word, the head word of a document is also called Rosh. And, of course, the head of a plant, like the stalk of wheat and so forth, wheat that produces uh, fruit, the head of that, that, that very heavy load of fruit is, is also called a Rosh and so forth. And so all three words having coming from uh, the Hebrew word Rosh. In John chapter 15, verse 1, we talked about this earlier, but I'd like to do it a little more detail. Yeshua says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. The word husbandman there in, in Hebrew is ikar. But I want to focus on the Greek word is giargas. Giargas. Giargas is, is the Greek word translated husbandman here. It's a combination of two Greek words. Gay, which is earth or the ground, and ergon, which is where we get, you know, the idea of ergonomics and so forth and so forth. Energy, work and energy. As a matter of fact, energy comes from ergon. And that means to work. So literally the husband means to work the ground. I'm going to suggest even inner, that with respect to the energy that's in the ground as well. That's why God has put energy in the, you and I come forth from the earth. Adam, man, earth, Adama, and Adam comes up out of the earth. And so therefore God has designed the place we come from to be the source of how we maintain ourselves, which came out from it. In other words, God has designed um, our bodies, when there's something wrong, we treat it with things that come up out of the ground because that's where we came from, because that's what he has worked, that's where his energy is. But what do we do? Well, we believe the evolutionary view that our body's just a bunch of, you know, chemicals in a laboratory or whatever. And so when there's something goes wrong with our bodies, our tendency, because of the nature of our culture, is to treat it with chemicals. Makes sense. If I'm convinced that my body is nothing but a bunch, but a bunch of synthetic chemicals and so forth, well then I should probably treat it with chemicals when there's something wrong with it. But our bodies come forth from the ground, not just the ground, but under the, uh, under, I believe, uh, even the, uh, the secret parts of the earth that we don't know about. And I'm going to talk about that a little later in, when we talk about Psalm 139. And so we treat it with the things from the ground. But, as many of us well know, our uh, uh, system in America does not uh, like that because there's no money to be made when somebody can just go out and pick something off a tree in the backyard for free and heal themselves. There's no money to be made there. And so they will always constantly criticize those of us who are trying to live our lives and treat ourselves with natural things of creation and not uh, the pharmaceutical things that just constantly fill our shelves in every store that I go into. Every grocery store I go into, at least three. It looks like sometimes at least one, one-fourth of that grocery store is nothing but pharmaceutical things. Okay, I'm getting off on a tangent there. Let's get back to 
uh, our subject in hand. Those of us who study in great detail the words of God, when we take a Greek, English, or Hebrew word and begin to break it down, that process of breaking it down is called morphology. Morphology. Now, morphology, if you look that word up in a dictionary, you will see that there are three definitions of the word morphology. The first one you're going to read is the study of the breakdown of words. I just mentioned that. To break them down into their smallest parts. The study of the breakdown of plants will be the second definitions. There's your seed. Here we go again. And the third definition you will see is the study of the breakdown of biological functions, that is, in the flesh. Some of these guys that do autopsies and so forth are investigating crimes as detectives. When they begin to take things apart, some of you have probably seen some of the you know, CSI shows or whatever, what they're doing is called morphology. And they're breaking it down. So once again, we have the same word used for grammar, plants, uh, agriculture and biological functions as well. In Jeremiah 31, 33, and repeated again in Hebrews 8, verse 10, here's what we read about the word of God respecting the new covenant. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says Yahweh, I will put my law, my Torah, in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he's going to take the Torah words, if you will, and he's going to put it where? In in us, inside of us. Now, I know this is just kind of a metaphor and just a, a symbolic act here, but it's the point that God uses these things to describe how he operates. Now, we all, I mentioned earlier on about the four levels of Hebrew interpretation. What I mean by Hebrew interpretation, I mean biblical. I submit to you that every single verse in the Bible has four levels of interpretation, which once again is God's way of saying, I'm capable, since I'm God and I'm smarter than you are, I am capable of teaching more than one thing in a verse, as opposed to uh, you fallen, corrupt, uh, uh, pinheaded, uh, one-dimensional human beings who fight with each other all the time because you think from a Greek point of view and that there's this each verse either means this or it means that. It's an either-or thinking process. But God is capable of teaching more than one thing in a verse. And when he does, he uses those four levels. They're called Peshat, Ramez, Drash, and Sod. And so over time, a mnemonic device was developed in order to help remember those four levels. Of course, that's what mnemonic devices are all about. And so they took Peshat, P, Ramez, R, Drash, D, Sod, S, and they made uh, a, a word in Hebrew, Pardis, which is the Hebrew word for orchard or a garden, an orchard or a garden. Pardis refers to a garden, all right? And the fact that in the garden, even though it's one garden, there are different kinds of, of, of fruit and vegetables in the garden. In order to understand the concept of the garden, you need to understand the concepts of the tomatoes and the kumquats and so on and so forth. And so it it's compared to this garden in order to fully understand the picture or what's being taught in each verse. It's like tending a garden. 
And so that's where the partis comes from. And so once again, we go back to Genesis chapter 2.15 and we notice that Adam was put in the garden to till it and to keep it. And that's what he was supposed to do. But of course, there's a fall going to take place after uh, because of that. And he's going to be cast out of the garden and things are going to start the process of corruption. And that's what I believe leads to the thinking process uh, that we have in our culture down the river, if you will, uh, now that we're dealing with. And we're trying to go back to the thinking process in the beginning. That's why Paul said, let this mind be in you that was in the Messiah, Yeshua. And as a matter of fact, it also refers to this a couple of other times. In Isaiah 58, 11, for example, it says, Yahweh shall guide you continually. Guide. Same word for guide is the same word in Hebrew for a river. And satisfy your soul in drought and make fat your bones. There's the etzem again. Bones, tree. And you shall be like a watered garden. Like a spring of water who, whose waters fail not. We are compared to a water garden. In other words, if we are seeking God His way, we will be seeking Him like a garden. In Shir Hashirim, which is translated in the English in different ways, Song of Songs and, and Song of Solomon and so on and so forth. Chapter 4 verse 12, it says, A garden enclosed is my sister. My spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Once again, we're compared to a garden. Now, in closing out this first uh, section here, we're going to talk about a very interesting grammatical term that's pronounced semim, semim, spelled S-E-M, and that's the crucial part of it, S-E-M-E-M-E. We talked about the word morpheme earlier, or morphology. Semim is a word we use to describe breaking down a word to the smallest possible uh, word that still has meaning. The smallest possible arrangement of letters that still has a meaning. In other words, it's the smallest part of a word. Sometimes, particularly in Hebrew, the smallest part of a word is actually the letter itself. It's not that true by the time you get to English and other languages or Greek, but the smallest part of a word in Hebrew is the individual letter. And I'll explain that in a few minutes because each letter has a meaning in Hebrew. And we use it to express the smallest part of a word. Now, the basis of semim is the S-E-M. It is a Greek and Latin term that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. S-E-M. In other words, we're breaking down the word semim into its smallest part, okay, S-E-M. And S-E-M is the basis uh, for the Latin word for seed, for example, comes from this, seed. Now, in Hebrew, the word for seed is zera. In Latin, it is uh, this word sem. In Greek, it is uh, spermata, okay, and sporos, in words like that. The basis, however, is S-E-M. It's where we get the word uh, and we're all adults here, semen from. Now, that's a medical term. I hope nobody's offended by that. But that is the seed of man. See, these things are all interrelated. And it's the smallest part, remember, of a word. Remember the fa- that the Messiah tells us that the seed is the word of God. And so it's displayed in how words are broken down, but it's also used to express what produces biological life between a man and a woman to produce a child. 
We even have a um, discipline uh, in which in which people study uh, signs, all kinds of possible signs, signs in music, signs in uh, in medicine, and so forth. And that's called semiology. Semiology is the study of the structure of all sign systems, all things that have signs. And I'm not going to go into the detail about that right now. But the idea is that sem is the uh, basis of the Greek word for a sign. So these words, as we all put them together in Hebrew and Greek and Latin and so forth, are all interrelated. Seed, is, which is from the Hebrew word sowed, Remember that fourth level of interpretation because so means something hidden and the seed. It's not, it's not something that doesn't exist. It's something that you have to dig to see. And that's why it ends up being a seed in English because the seed is under the ground. And so in, in language, the concept of the word and semen and the smallest part of a word, semim, and seed and signs are all interrelated. I hope that you can see that. They're all interrelated with each other. In your Bible, for example, and we need to go back to the Bible because that's the whole purpose and function of this, to give you an example of, a, of an occurrence of this Greek word, semino, which is from sem, remember, the smallest part of something. And it's the Greek word for a sign. In Hebrew... The Hebrew word for a sign is ot. Ot. Aleph, holem, vav, tav. Aleph, vav, tav. Hebrew for a sign is a, is ot. It's also the Hebrew word for token and for miracle. It's translated in your, in your, in your Old Testament primarily as those three words. A sign, a token, or a miracle. But it's the modern Hebrew word for a letter. The individual letter, not a letter that you write to someone, but the individual letters of the alphabet, the Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, each one of those is called an ot, a sign. See, in, only in Hebrew do we have this relationship between the letters of the alphabet and the, and the word for signs, miracles, and tokens. Things that God reveals to man to teach him something. In Hebrew, it happens to be the individual letters of the alphabet is the oat or the letter or a sign. And I'm going to suggest to you when we get to uh, our next session of the Torah written on your DNA, you're going to see that these things inside of us in our cellular structure, once again, are signs because there are individual letters written on your DNA. Now, keep that in mind before we get into the whole DNA thing, that these things are all interrelated. And i give you an example. In Heat Galut, which is translated as the Revelation, in your Bible 1 verse 1, it says, The revelation of Messiah Yeshua, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. He's going to show you something. He sent and signed it, signified, semino, there's your S-E-M, by his angel and to his servant, Yochanan. I'm going to suggest to you, before God begins his revelation, actually, Heat Galut, exiles, the book of Revelation is all about the return of the exiles. Before he begins that, he's going to give you signs. I'm going to suggest from the very beginning, he's given us signs. And those things are even recorded in the individual letters of Scripture. 
That's one of the things that I believe God is revealing in these last days is that even through the individual letters of the words, God is speaking to us and showing us that he is the creator, he is God, and that we must first come, in order for us to come to him and please him, we must first believe that he is. And I believe a lot of these things are convincing many skeptics today that that we've been duped into thinking that evolution is science and creation is religious things. And nothing could be further from the truth. And more and more, we need to be equipped and be able to show our skeptical, unbelieving, atheistic, evolutionary friends that the Bible is the accurate 100% word of God. Let me give you a few examples of how this Greek word, semino, sim, sign, letter, word, so forth, is used throughout Scripture. In Exodus 18, verse 20, it says, And you shall teach them ordinances and laws, and shall show them the way, wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. Show them the way. The word show them there, in Greek, is this word semino. You shall give them a sign. You shall reveal something to them. But in Hebrew, what's interesting about this is this is translating the Hebrew word yada. Yada. In Greek, it's semino, and thou, sh- thou shalt show them. In Hebrew, it's yada. Now, we've talked about this word before. There's two primary words in Hebrew that express the idea of knowing. One is the intimate word, yada. The other one is just an experiential word that's used in the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is da'at. That is an experiential kind of knowledge. Remember, God wants you to stay away from that tree. But knowing him, and this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, John 17, verse 3. That is yada. Have an intimate relationship with you. In other words, it's the Hebrew word also for uh, knowing a man, a woman conceiving and bearing a child. And Adam knew his wife. See, it's an intimate term. There's an intimacy there that cannot be seen and expressed any other way but through a relationship. And this is the word used to show them the way that they must walk. It comes through the result of an intimate relationship with God. And as far as the way mankind, man and woman, was designed in the beginning, there's nothing more intimate than when Adam knew his wife. And she conceived and bore a child. Some of you know what I'm talking about there. That's when you really get to have the true kind of knowing that God is talking about. The rest is just learned by experience. But this is an intimate relationship. And it's this Greek word to show or a sign. And we also know that Revelation chapter 1 starts with this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and right in the middle of that phrase is this word, Aleph Tav. Now, Aleph Tav does not contain the Vav. I'm going to suggest to you that the three-letter consonantal root of the Aleph Tav, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning, the end, Yahweh himself, and also something that Yeshua claims to be, in the Old and the New Testament it's used of him. You see it in the text I have found 611 of them. There are some that say that there's 613 occurrences of this untranslated two letters, uh, 613 occurrences where it stands all by himself. All by itself, but I, I, I believe himself. In other words, when you see a little dash connected to it, 
connected to another word. That appears over 10,000 times. That's not really that big of a deal. But when those two letters stand by themselves and they're not translated, that is when your antennas should go up because the Aleph Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet, are what is a description of the Word of God. Aleph Tav, when we say that phrase, we mean Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, He, Vav, Zion, the whole alphabet that created the universe is God himself. But the, but that those two letters have a root because the three-letter consonantal root of that word is when you put the Vav in there. Now, what's interesting about that is that when you put a Vav in the midst of it, now it's the Hebrew word sign. Remember we talked about that letter? Ot, a sign, but also the Hebrew word for a letter. Hebrew word for a sign. So it's a description without the Vav of Yahweh himself. But then Yeshua turns to the Pharisees and he says, I'm only going to give you one oat, one sign. And he describes basically the result of his crucifixion, that he's going to be buried in the earth for three days and three nights and so forth, describing his hanging on the tree. That's the sign that he's going to give them. And so what's interesting about that is that he is nailed to a tree. Well, the letter that's inserted between the first and last letters of the alphabet, a description of Yahweh, God himself, the the letter that's driven in between, placed right in between there, is the Vav, the Hebrew letter of the nail. It's the letter that, that represents the nail or the hook. So is it possible that Yeshua was saying, the sign I'm going to give you, is that the word for Yahweh is going to have a nail, is going to have to take upon flesh to do that because you can't drive a nail into spirit. So he takes upon flesh and you drive a nail in, in between those words and now you have the sign of who he is, as he told uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So it goes from the words for Yahweh to the Hebrew word for sign, when you drive, if you place right in between the Aleph and the Tav, the letter of the nail, and that was the only sign that he was going to give them. I submit to you uh, that distinct uh, possibility. And once again, you see this right in the beginning in Genesis 1.1, right next to the Hebrew word for God. Rashid bara Elohim etz hashameim et haaretz. The middle letter there, I've already taught this before, but those who haven't heard it, it's untranslated, is right there with God, and the Aleph Tav is God. God describes himself as the beginning and the end, the Aleph and the Tav, the Alpha and Omega in Greek. And there it is, right there in the beginning, described as God, and there it is right next to the word Elohim with God. And so how does John 1-1 beginning? Begin. In the beginning was the word, the Aleph Tav, and the word was with God, and there it is. You look at Genesis 1-1, and it's right there with God, and God was the Aleph Tav, or the word. So keep in mind, once again, that this Aleph Tav is the Hebrew word for a sign. It's a description of God himself, when the Vav is removed. It's also the word for a letter, the individual letters 
of Hebrew are signs, is what I submit to you. Now, what's fascinating about that to me is there's a particular book called The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene. It was turned into a big a PBS special several years ago as well. And the thing, it's all about string theory, which is one of the things that we're going to talk about in a future Area 51 series. But quoting from his book, The Elegant Universe, this astronomer, this scientist says, and I quote, the fundamental particles of the universe that physicists have identified, electrons, neutrinos, quarks, and so on, are the letters of all matter. They describe it as the letters of all matter. Do you think that that is just a coincidence that scientists who are not out to prove the Bible, but can see out in the fundamental things of the universe that it, it came from, and they equate them to the letters of all matter. We're going to continue to talk about these kind of things as we finish with our agrobiolinguistics, and then we're going to get into this fascinating Word of God displayed in your bodies in our life cycles as well. Okay, so until we see you again, cling to your roots that your days may be long and that you will prosper in everything you set your hand to do. Shalom Aleichem. See you next time. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Find the Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach. Find the truth on Solace Radio.